Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Um, pretty serious um, version of the Mensa Brothers today. It's the first of a, a series of discussions that we'll do about the investigation that was just released into the 15th Mew incident that occurred on July 30th that killed eight Marines and one United States Navy corpsman. So um, uh, this week, in this discussion, uh, we're going to talk about uh, logistics. We'll talk about training, and both individual and, uh, and unit. And, uh, and, and we'll see how far we, we get into that discussion. So, uh, so let me cede the floor to Timmy. And, uh, well, first of all, Tim Lynch joins us from, uh, from Midland, Texas. Tim, how you doing? Down in McGowan, brother, but I'm doing fine. I knew, I knew. Just seeing if you were paying attention. Jeff Kenny from, uh, San Bernardino, California. Jeff, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm dying to see from Eddie, but I'm doing fine. Thank you. And uh, Will Constantini from Buffalo, New York. Will, what's going on? I'm actually in the Kansas side of Kansas City. Uh, much better than Buffalo. Hey, hey, be <laughs> careful with that. Um, all right, Timmy, uh, you had something you wanted to say before we get before we actually get going. Yeah, we uh, you sent this. Uh, we all got copies of the investigation on Friday night that you delivered to us. And as I was sitting down and going over the thing. I found myself left with nothing but but questions, and it occurred to me that with Will and Jeff, we have, if there are two more experienced colonels who have done this exact evolution, being part of a MU going ship to shore and AAVs, I don't know of them. And so I with that, I want to step out the way and listen to the two experts talk about this, because I've got questions, and I think that they're going to have answers or, or validate my questions. But I, I cede the floor to the two experts. Right. Well, first of all, let's just talk about, you know, the amount of experience you guys have. So, well, you want to talk about your experience and how many times uh, you, you've uh, you've been a part of a MU and and uh, and worked with tracks. You want to do that? And then we'll talk about Jeff. Yeah, sure. So uh, 1989, I was the XO of Lima Company 3.8 and uh, we formed a BLT and we were the MEC company. So we did that six-month workup and then six-month deployment with the AVs. And me and Jeff were in the same company then, and we deployed out on Spartanburg County. And then uh, 1994, uh, I took command of Echo Company 2-6, and we were also uh, a MEC company. So we joined our AV platoon. So we did that workup and that deployment, and uh, we went out on Whidbey Island. Uh, that time. And then uh, 1997, 98, 96, 97, 98, I was the uh, OPSO for uh, 1-2. And uh, same thing, not uh, down at the company level with AVs, but at the battalion level as, as the uh, operations officer uh, on another MU float. So I did three floats, all of them off the East Coast. All right, Jeff, you want to talk about your experience? Yeah, I mean, uh, I worked with uh, AVs in Korea in 1980 as a sergeant with 3-5, uh, you know, for, you know, that was kind of like my intro in uh, June of uh, 19, um, 
um, uh, 80. And then uh, it was very cursory. Then when I got commissioned, as Will said, my first float as an officer was with 3A, and I did that float as a platoon commander in a company that was uh, the Met company for 22nd Mew. And then when, when Will left and went up to Quantico, uh, I took his place as the XO of the company. And we did another Mew float that uh, started, in, uh, started in August of uh, 90, concomitant with uh, Saddam Hussein, the whole Desert Shield thing. And uh, we, uh, we, we did the Liberia thing, and then we, you know, we went to uh, the Med. We basically did another AV float. We never went to war in uh, Desert Storm, but we did a lot of the uh, same type of ops that I had done as a second lieutenant and first lieutenant in 89. Then in uh, 1995, one of the, well, one of the first things I did was evaluate Will as the AAV, uh, as the uh, Met Company commander for that float he was on, uh, even though I hadn't been a company commander in AAVs yet. That's where we did things in those days. And then, uh, but with that same, uh, that, that same time frame, 95, 96, I was a CEO of a rifle company that was also the Met Company for, uh, again, 22nd Mew. And, uh, and that was, uh, you know, we, we actually, deployed in early 96 until like summer of 96 and then um i uh i i became the opso of the 15th mew in 2003 and uh so i was involved in you know a lot higher level as far as like will was saying he was the opso for the blt i was the opso for the mew and uh it was even though it was uh we were involved in in uh going into oif in 2005 our workup was as if we were going to do another Mew float, you know, that we we're going to be doing uh, all those missions and things like that. So I had to work uh, a lot with the uh, planning and execution of the AAVs. And then um, um, I became the, uh, the director of the uh, Expeditionary Ops Training Group in 2014. And, uh, again, I, my job was to, to run the PTP for the Mews on the East Coast. So I, I did four Mu PTPs there, uh, 24th Mu, 26th Mu, 22nd Mu, and then again the 24th Mu before I retired. So I had I and uh, and, and one third of your uh, I wouldn't say one third maybe one quarter of the things you do uh, when you're actually evaluating these guys, evaluating their ability to conduct surface amphibious ops with AVs. So and that's and, my, how, uh, and how background. many and how many years did you do that? I, w- I did that from uh, 2014 to 2017. Okay. All right. And, and, and just to show how th- how unique this is, um, I mean, I, I remember an AV incident in the boat basin uh, at Del Mar, Camp Pendleton, you know, years ago. Uh, well, uh, in AVs attached to the to uh, the track vehicle school out there. Um, and, and, and Jeff, you said you remember one that involved loss of life in the med, um, and then another one off Okinawa, but that, that was, I think we tried to run that down and, uh, what's that? Yeah, it was, it wasn't easy to run it down. Right. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, just to give people some sense of the infrequency that this happens. All right. Uh, with that being said, the first thing I want to talk about is, uh, is logistics, Right. And uh, so how do you form this thing uh, as you as you begin to put this mute together? Uh, how does this particular 
what you're talking about is the tr what is known as the track company. How does it get put together? Yeah, so uh, not to insult any of our listeners' intelligence out there, but if you're going to deploy six months, and, and again, my timeline might be a little bit dated, um, but typically yeah. six months before you deploy, the whole MU comes together. So you've got your battalion landing team, your composite squadron, your CSS unit, MU headquarters. 30 days before that, so seven months before the battalion landing team would form. And in those days, battalion landing team, infantry battalion, tank platoon, AV platoon, artillery battery, combat engineer platoon, reconnaissance platoon, a bunch of special equipment that you would also join, boats, climbing equipment, et cetera. So 210 days out, you put all that together. Probably 30 to 45 days before that, the division is tasking all those separate battalions, a tank battalion, AV battalion, et cetera, what their requirements are going to be. How many tanks got to go, tank retriever, what artillery pieces, et cetera. And they send that tasking order out so that on the seven month prior to deployment, all that equipment moves from their parent units into this battalion's equipment list. And that equipment is supposed to come over completely ready to deploy. Yes. Uh, there's a series of inspections that involve the battalions, as uh, for uh, the various supporting units, logistics officers, the actual platoon commanders. And that stuff is overseen by the division staff. And so you would expect the division maintenance officer, the division G4 representing the commanding general to make sure that this equipment is transferred and it actually falls under the account uh, of the joining battalion. Uh, and I've had battalion commanders that were also very involved in that to the point of going to those because the equipment doesn't move like in Camp Lejeune, the AVs don't move from AV home base over on the beach to main side. They stay there. Mm -hmm. But our battalion commander would go over and inspect that equipment with his S4. And they're looking at paperwork that says the equipment is ready to go. And they're also actually inspecting all the various pieces and parts, the SL3 component of that. And there are times when the equipment's not available or it's not a condition code one or whatever the logistics term is. And what would come along with that would be an identification of those particular pieces and a remediation plan. And the guy that owns that remediation plan is a division commander. And a lot of this is because it's, it's fiscal. When that stuff at day minus 180, right, the BLT formed at day minus 210, minus 180, all of that equipment moves under the MEF's control. And... When you come back from deployment, all that equipment goes back to the division. And the division commander at that time is expecting equipment 100% that he sent over. So the MEF commander expects him to give him equipment that's 100% or a remediation plan, parts, fiscal, whatever, to ensure that that equipment is up to standard. 
Now, the fiscal side of it sounds mundane, and it probably is in many ways, but that's at the that's a two and three star level. Professionally, the equipment's got to be it can get you know it absolutely ready to go because the mu training that goes for six months is uh, probably the most intense training cycle you're going to go through. You don't have time to not do training because your equipment isn't ready. There's a series of windows that you need to get through training events that if you miss, you can't continue to slide your training plan to the right because that deployment day is not going to shift. And so there's sort of a professional responsibility to ensure that all the equipment is not what slows down training. You know, God is going to vote. There's going to be weather. There's going to be other events, but a sort of professional discipline that's required is to get these things done. Uh, you want you want to just talk about some of the deficiencies in the investigation that glared Mac? You want yeah. to go there? Yeah. 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 Okay. Let's talk about that. So just focused on this AV platoon, uh, and I don't have it pulled up in front of me, so I'm going from memory. Uh, Typically, I think there's 14 AVs or 15. Normally, you would get two C7s and two P7 AVs attached, so there's four. Ten more P7s, which are typically troop carriers, and then an R7 recovery variant. And I didn't see that they had an R7 associated with this, so that may not be sort of the current table. Well, if you remember, Will, the R7 is owned by the... uh by the logistics group. Ah, okay. So they would chop it over there. So these 14 vehicles that were supposed to go from third track battalion there at Camp Pendleton over to the BLT, if I remember right, 13 out of 14 of them were deadlined, meaning they weren't in condition to conduct operations. And so then what happened is, they determined that they couldn't actually chop them over. They weren't going to chop these deficient vehicles over to them. But the track battalion was going to make them right. An interesting part of the bureaucracy, though, is a battalion landing team has a much higher maintenance priority than the rest of the division. When they didn't chop the vehicles over, they didn't get that higher maintenance priority. And so those are vehicles were not drawing uh, repair parts at the highest level uh, that they could have. They were just as if they were in the pool of 3rd Track Battalion over there. And so at that point, the CO of 3rd Track Battalion, he's already failed once and that he didn't have a complete platoon reinforced to send over. And then he failed to make those unit, those pieces of equipment good uh, in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, I'm not sure they ever made them good because uh, we'll get to it later, but the, the material condition of the vehicles was pretty substandard uh, on the day of the event. Um, so you had real failure at the AV battalion commander, the probably the AV company commander in as a supporting unit, You had failure at a command level in the division 
for not foreseeing this and then allowing it to happen. Uh, and all of that gets handed to the battalion commander, the BLT commander, uh, who, and again, I don't think the investigation gets into that, but there should have been a series of reports right. in his sorts and sorts is seen at the headquarters Marine Corps level as it filters its way up uh, through first the division, then the MEF. Uh, so uh, a real lack of attention to fundamentals of how you prepare a unit that's going to be forward deployed uh, at all levels of command uh, really is a story, the logistics story of this particular unit. All right, so all right, we're, we're not going to, we're just going to kind of lay this stuff, how it how it's supposed to form. Um, the next piece we want to talk about is, is the training piece. Timmy, any questions for, for Will? And, and again, the stuff they're talking about, when you talk about source reports and you're talking about fiscal, I mean, that's, this is not like, you know, your lieutenants are not working on this. Okay, that's not that's not what level this stuff is. This stuff hits, you know, with a thud, and it gets the attention of, of, of very senior people, because you know the muse, you know, the, the muse. That's a, it's a big deal in the division and in the math, and so and uh, and headquarters. The commandant gets right. a brief every week that shows where the muse are, to include the muse that are forming and training. Right. And the idea that you have a unit that is combat ineffective and doesn't get immediate attention, Division G4, Division Maintenance Officer, Division Commander, uh, MEF counterparts, Headquarters Marine Corps. Uh, I mean, I'll go far as to say the, the program manager for AAVs. I mean, this thing... The idea that this was not a blaring red light in everyone's face is really, um, and again, this stuff this didn't get this didn't get made up for Fifteenth Mew. This yeah. has been going on like this for sixty or more years. These right. are standard procedures that every one of these guys has been through. You would think multiple times. Yes. Um, and that it didn't. I, I, do we, this didn't attract their attention. I'm not sure what does. This is your job as a G4, as a maintenance officer, as the track battalion. This is your job. So I don't know. Uh, well, like I said, when I read the investigation, I had questions. It sounds like Will has the same damn questions. So I guess I wasn't too far off the mark. And I never had to spend six months on LST. Boom. I feel like I'm winning at this particular stage. Or uh, whatever that's worth. But but yeah, these these are this this disheartening. And and when we talk about the training, I think we'll be even more so. All right, let's talk about training. All right. Um uh both you guys you want to take a, a swing up, you know, so so this thing forms, all right, and talk about uh you know how how does the training, you know, 
How does training work? I mean, where does it start? I mean, you have yeah. two you have two separate organizations, and with the you know in terms of tracks, and then you have you know a company of Marines, um, you know, and so they're 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 from different battalions. Uh, you're now going to create a battalion landing team and combine this stuff. Uh, people have not worked together. How does it work? How does the training work? Well, you're supposed to provide if you're like in this case the division commander, um, the uh, the MEF CG, who is going to put the MU together, you know, and then hand it over to the MU commander. You, he has to have uh, the level of training is usually evaluated by a McCree, you know, the Marine Corps evaluation thing, and uh, and that uh, lets you know, and they have to be at a certain level, and that goes for the AV drivers, the AV crew chiefs, you know, the mechanics who work on that stuff. They got to be qualified. They have to have a certain level of qualification, and uh, the uh, there also has to be uh, a certain level of uh, that's evaluated of efficiency, combat efficiency for the uh, for the infantry you know battalion that goes in there, and uh, and it's not just for the uh, division guys either. The ace has to, and the one that really usually draws most of the attention in a mu is what the air uh, combat element has to do to get ready because their stuff, you know, is uh, they have more accidents that result in death by far than the, than the AVs or by the GCE, you know, in general. I mean, let's face it, the most dangerous thing is flying machines. And so uh, a lot of attention is to that. You know, the, uh, the, the, uh, air, conti- uh, you know, the air combat element is, uh, you know, super vital part of the uh, MAGTAP. So, uh, but all of it, all of it, you know, is, uh, you know, in my experience, it's always been, um, you know, a stressful thing when when thick people are chopped over for the stuff that Will talked about with the gear, you know, if it's not ready, but also level of training of the of the Marines, and uh, so it's not so you have the AVs, you have the LAVs, tanks, the uh, you know the the, the engineer platoon, the uh, and then the uh, the rolling stock that's concomitant with the battalion. Every a every mu that goes out there has thirty seven seven tons. And, you know, about half of them belong to the BLT and the other half belong to logistics folks. And they all got to work. Everything has to work when you put that together. And if it doesn't work good, it's noted and possibly, possibly the MEF commander through his staff lets, you know, there be, like Will said, a remediation. But uh, for the training, that, that stuff has to happen fast. Before the, the AAV platoon is, uh, is made part of the uh, battalion, they uh, – the uh, they have to establish a certain level of uh, you know training training levels, qualifications and cohesion within that unit because you know they're going to be married up with an infantry company and uh, you know they have to have their stuff together first and uh, so that that is usually happens like when Will is talking about uh, about seven months or so out. It happens usually before that. These guys know they're going. Now there may be some cases where you know somebody joins late or or something like that, but normally they have to be. You know that platoon is ready to go as far as training goes. They're qualified on the vehicles. They're qualified on those guns. You know the uh, the crew chief. They they know how to operate the fifty cal and Mark nineteen, and the uh, and all the AVs are up to snuff and they and the. Uh, and the uh, the crews know their particular AAVs, you know. 
I mean, they name them for Christ's sakes, you know, and, and that all that stuff is done before they ever meet up with the infantry. Got it. Awesome. The, um, all right. So then, so now we join this thing. What's the next step in training? Well, the next step in training is they start to, to get to know each other because even though they've been joined up under the auspices, you know, of the Mu command element, they have to work together to establish cohesion that allows them to be able to do those specialized missions that the Mu does. So the first thing they usually let them do is they operate alone together. And they do stuff like, how do you get out of the AV if it's on fire on the ground? How do you, you know, how do you, how do you get out of the AV if it's in the water? How do you wear your, uh, you know, your life vest and stuff? And how do you get rid of your gear if you have to? And uh, the, uh, and that's, you know, done a couple of times, a, a couple of times a, a training evolution when you first get together. And a lot of times, uh, you know, different AV. Uh, you know, platoons will have, uh, they'll have the grunt company come down, you know, slick with no gear and everything. And they'll walk them through stuff because it is a factor. You know, it's a factor, not only in effectiveness, but of safety. And they'll go through that. And, uh, bottom line being once they start training, the evolutions that the Mew goes through, there's no, there's no, uh, respite. I mean, it starts and it goes right through to the end. The first half of it is pretty much uh, on the ground. And even though you're doing amphibious ops, you're probably not using the ships because they're just not available. And so you splash out, you go out beyond the surf zone, you turn around, you come back in and you work. And it's good because you get to work out a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, cohesion issues. But the only way you can solve them is by working together. The second half of the deployment is the at sea periods. And that is where. The amphibiosity. Hold on, hold on. You said second half of the deployment. No, second half of the PTP. I said. Okay, got it. Okay. Thank Six you. months that Will talked about the the uh, you know the uh, the the training uh, plan that you're going to do. The first three months of it is uh, is evaluated stuff that's mostly on the ground. Now the air guys are working with the uh, you know the the big deck landing and taking off and stuff like that. But most of the Marines don't see the ships until that first that sea period, which is now called PMINT. And I forgot what it stands for, but it's about a five to seven day time on ship where you work out basically getting used to being on ship. And there's very basic ship to shore movement, both air wise and uh, surface wise. So they work out bugs with the AVs, with the LCU, the landing craft, uh, you know, the slow moving landing craft we have. And with the LCACs, the air cushion vehicles we have that bring, you know, a lot of surface stuff to the beach. They work out a lot of... Uh, SOPs that the Navy has, regulations that the Navy has. And one thing that leaps out to everybody on that first at sea period and gets driven home with every frequency in the next two is the fact that from ship to shore, the Navy owns it. The Navy is totally responsible for getting the Marines to the beach. Okay, hold on. So, hold on. Your voice cut out when you said the, it said the blank, it went blank. So who owns the ship to shore movement? That belongs to the commander of the amphibious task force, i.e. the Navy. Got it. Got it. Got it. So the Navy is responsible for safety boats out there. The Navy decides if the sea state will allow surface ops. And when I say the Navy, I mean the captain of the ship that those vehicles are coming off of. If they're AVs, that captain. If they're LCACs, that captain. And them, and they can't be overruled. And so if he thinks those seas are too rough, 
your op doesn't happen. And the same thing when you're coming back to the ship after you do your mission. If he feels that the sea state is too rough or things are too dangerous based on what his people are telling him, you don't come back until it's safe. And yeah, uh, if I could say, if I could say something about training too, you know, you get into sort of micro minutia when you're dealing with AVs to the point that Marines know where they sit, who's sitting to their left and right, so you can do rapid accountability. They understand that vehicle and their role in it, where the driver can see, where he can't see, so that how you approach a vehicle. Um, and a lot of details that I didn't know right. as a Marine officer, the AV platoon commander had to do training with the ship how to communicate, how to explain where they were, what the surf condition was, uh, how they were going to approach a ship. Uh, all of that is sort of detailed technical training that can't be overlooked because that's what facilitates you to be able to do a mission. Yeah, uh, when, the Navy, when you're doing those ops, the Navy is running it. And, I mean, their combat information center, you know, their bridge – they, that's that's what they're doing, and that's all they're doing. Really, I, 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 okay, so I want to ask you a couple questions about this stuff. Um, so essentially what we're talking about is battle drills, right, safety SOPs uh, on, on individual vehicles, and then, you know, we'll, we'll mention accountability too. So we join up, and uh, we're conducting mechanized operations ashore, Okay. Now we're going to go to the beach. Does anything happen different when we when we go to the beach? I mean, we've been operating together, right? Yes. And, and I assume that, you know, as Will said, everybody knows where they're sitting. They know how to approach the vehicle because we do this on land, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, well, can you, can you guys both give me your experiences when you go yeah. feet wet? Um, is there training that gets done, you know, the, the day that we're going to do that for the first time? Yes. I mean, the, the Marines have to be briefed up on what happens if there's an emergency. If, I mean, if that, the first time these guys are in these AVs was when this accident happened. That's just unacceptable. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. No. You have to go backwards to training. Yeah. Well, well hold on. Wait, wait, hold on. Let, let on me just... how to put your gear on. Yeah, right. How your... to put your gear on. And like Will said, where you're sitting and how you get out of the thing if you have to. But they, they, but they, they had trained as... the shore. Just to just to make this point, they had trained ashore. This was their first day at sea, right? Going do, doing waterborne movements. Yeah, and w I mean, you want to talk about nitinoid minutia? How you put your life vest on with all of your rest of your protective equipment surrounding it? Where your rifle is supposed to be? Uh, how you're going to release your gear and keep your life vest on? All that stuff is. You get trained on the beach and inspected by the AAV platoon right. and eventually section until the point that the rifle squad leaders, platoon sergeants, platoon commanders know what that SOP is, know how it's supposed to be done. Individual Marines understand that. That's an actual training period of that's, put your life vest on. Because the first time a Marine is going to see a life vest, you don't, you don't wear them when you're doing training ashore. The first time is that first time you're going to splash. Right. And it's not an insignificant little minutia 
piece of training that's absolutely required. It should be the first thing when you get together at the AAV platoon. At the beginning of the, you know, the pre-deployment training, the PTP, you go through that stuff. You go through that basic stuff. I mean, anybody would do that, you know? Okay. And, right. and it's, it's as simple as where's the bag of life vests? Which AV crewman brings it out? Where do they put it? How do Marines line up and get them? Yeah. Who's inspecting them to make sure that they got it on right before they load the vehicle? Sounds stupid. It's a pre-combat check and inspection that is a, an absolute fundamental basic thing that if you get wrong, it yeah, may not mean shit until it really matters. Okay, yeah. so so then, so the first day that we do this, um, we splash, and then we're off conducting Operation C. Is there any is there any training period when we're going, you know, out turning around and coming back? I mean, going out. I mean, fifty meters, turning around and coming back, and 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 we and we do this, you know, well, we, we do this crawl walk run thing. Well, the training period with the AVs and the Marines should happen when they first, uh, when the BLT first gets together, right as they're getting uh, chopped to the Marine Expeditionary Unit. So sometime then, during the workup, right, right, we 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 take the tracks and we go down to the we go down to the basin, we go down, we go down to Red Beach, we go down someplace, and right, we probably and, Red Beach, right? And we do this drill. Yeah, they'll do it. There won't be any ship involved, but they'll do the drill. The the AV guys normally. They'll get a ship, and it may not be the ship, but before the the uh, pre-deployment training even starts, they'll have their guys up to snuff at getting on an LSD, right. you know, so that they know how to to get the ship from the water up into the uh, you know into the well deck of the uh, the LSD. But that's not just the AV guys, you know, driving up onto a, a you know a, a, a supine boat that's sitting there with its uh, you know with its ramp down. That's not what it is. The ship is running that operation. They're telling them when they can go, you know, they're going to, they're telling them, you know, they're giving them uh, rudder steers the whole way they're in there. And then they supervise them getting on the ship. Okay. But, but again, my, I want to go back to my question. So, so when, when we begin to do this training, this, this, it's going to be kind of dry, wet training, right? Not and we do all the things we'll talk about, you know, the, the life has come out, we get inspected, right? We know where we're sitting. We, we, we load the track and do we ever launch into the surf, drive out 50 meters, turn around and come back? And we, and, yes. and we do this shit for, you know, for, for the better part of a day till we have it down. Yeah. Well, uh, do we, during the pre-deployment training, you're not going to have ships for the first part of it. So the EOTG people will be, they'll be, um, grading you doing raids and they'll do exactly that. You'll splash out, you'll go beyond the surf zone and then you'll hit the beach as if you're coming from a ship. Right. And, and so you'll be doing amphibious ops. You just won't be working with the Navy yet. Got it. And, uh, and, but all those safety things the Marine needs to know, you know, the Marine doesn't really need to know too much about the amphib himself, the individual Marine. He just needs to know how to put the, like Will said, you know, put the, uh, how to, you know, wh how he's going to get the, uh, you know, the, the BC, how he's going to put it on in, in regards to his gear, you know, who is in charge of telling him when it's time, you know, to, uh, to abandon the vehicle if it comes to that which is so rare that, uh, you know, you, you go through it, but you don't actually practice the actual thing. That was my next question. Yeah, I would suggest, Mac, that the AV platoon, when they come together 210 days out, before they ever meet a rifle company, they're doing this drill themselves. Oh, yeah. Empty. 
so that they have crew cohesion. Then the next step, they're doing dry land training. Then the next step is they're doing the beach training without any ships. So that by the time they're ready to go to a ship, all of their crews are cohesive, all the individual training is done, all the battle drill, all emergency procedures. So we had another level of comp- complication, navigating out to a ship, mounting the ship, et cetera. Got it. And, and so you get all that stuff out of the way. So when you do finally get with the Navy, that's all there is. That's the only thing you really got to learn, how to coalesce with the Navy. Got it. Um, now the, uh, next thing I want to talk about is, uh, and Jeff, you already kind of stole this, but, uh, now at the unit level, at the unit level, what are the components now that you, 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 you've done all this and now we're going to splash for the first time. What, what are the components now when the unit begins to move in terms of training? Are you talking the, the Marines? Or the uh, or the or the MAGTAF as a whole, I mean, the, you know the. No, I'm talking. I'm talking the 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 MEC platoon. I'm talking about the AV platoon. So now now we're gonna now we're gonna uh, the training a, a, as a unit, right? And so, you know, the, I mean, can you explain to us? Does every yeah. vehicle have a wingman? You know, does you know? So if my comm goes down. You know, I can use hand and arm signals. I know Timmy's watching me, and I, I and I begin to signal to him, tell him that I've got calm issues, and he begins to close distance with me. You know, so in terms of the 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 now we're now we're at sea, now we're at sea, or or you know, can you explain the unit behavior yeah. to us? The the AVs do they practice a lot of that hand and arm signal and flags. They use flags to communicate when they can't talk via radio communication so if there's an issue in the water they can communicate with each other and they need to pay attention just like when we're on patrol you know you're always looking at each other in case there's an issue and so you can catch a signal same thing with the avs when they're in the water the other thing that helps is the navy runs the operation of the of the avs splashing out of the ship and then going to the shore they're actually in charge of it so they have their safety boats out there, which are also on a frequency that the Marines are on, and they can talk. If an AAV is in distress, one of those safety boats, at least one, should go to it, and they'll talk to each other verbally just you know, within 10 meters of each other or so to find out what's the problem. And then, you know, the, then the, uh, the problem will be relayed to the, uh, to the ship, what's going on, and back to the AAV, you know, the AAV commander. And uh, – and, and, and matter of fact, probably the, uh, the, uh, the command element of the MU, which will probably be on another ship, they'll get that word too. So the, uh, you know, there's so many different uh, um, uh, ways of communicating. It's hard to see that, uh, you know, that, uh, that an AV would be neglected in the water without any kind of anyone knowing what's going on with them, you know, uh, in a case like that. Got it. Got it. Will, anything to add? Yeah, I, I would just say, uh, you know, it's an interesting dynamic between the rifle company commander and the AV platoon commander. Typically, you're on the same track with that guy as a company commander. Um, and so when you're getting ready to leave the beach, that guy is the guy communicating with the Navy. As a rifle company commander, you don't have shit to say to anybody. If you got calm with a battalion, 
which you may not, right? Ship might be over the horizon. Um, but that AV platoon commander is the one communicating to the ship when conditions are set for you to be able to go back. Uh, so he's got a separate radio channel that he's guarding. And okay, I never can, can, once. Can I, can I go ahead? Yeah, I never once was involved in any of that communication or cared about it. My AV platoon commander was the one telling the ship how many vehicles, how many people, uh, where we were, that we were ready to go. Got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, and that's he would why just tell I, me. Yeah, that's why I said earlier that a lot of times the AV platoon will hook up with the Navy, you know, for a ship that's available. This happened at Lejeune. It happens at Pendleton. So they can practice. It's, it's probably not going to be the ship they're going to deploy on, but they can get used to the SOPs. They're pretty much identical, you know, right. how things are done. Right. So that they're greener guys or guys who've just come off independent duty, like recruiting duty or something, they can get regrained on what's, you know, what happens. Right. Look, can we talk about, uh, I just want to talk about command and control and who's talking to who. So, uh, I assume the Mew has a COC, uh, on the ship that it's working out of. And then the Navy has a combat information center, um, that, that they, that they work out of. Uh, could you guys explain, um, uh, I, I believe those are two separate compartments, um, and the track platoon commander is talking to the CIC, the Navy, I would assume, um, or the bridge, yeah. right, and 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 not talking to the Mu COC because Navy's in control of this. Is 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 that is that fair? Is that well, is that the way this thing gets set up? If. Uh Usually what's going to happen, it's been happening recently, is you're right about the AV platoon commander. He's talking to the ship. Right. The, the, as far as uh, the, C, the, uh, the LFOC, we call it, uh, where the MU headquarters is, and usually the BLT headquarters is there too, as well as the ACE headquarters, that, that command element set up in the Landing Force Operations Center for the Marines, that's where the, the company commander may be talking to uh, – he may be talking to the he may be talking to the MU commander. He may be talking to his BLT commander. He may be talking to nobody, you know. But usually, if and the reason he might not be talking to anybody is it's not like a, it's a it's, it's just a he's doing a he's doing a training exercise and it's not part of like the big picture. When they start working as a, as a whole unit, to where you know they're 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 executing items on execution checklists then they will have calm with that landing force operations center and there will be talk, but it will be exercise talk usually unless there's an emergency. If there's an emergency, also, you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I don't, I mean, the ship that's uh, launching or recovering AVs is not the same ship where the LFOC is. Right. Right. That's a, it's, the big docs yeah. got the LFOC. They might be 15 miles out to sea. All right as opposed to the ship that's launching AAVs is closing to what? 2000 yards, something like yeah. that. Yeah. 6,000 yeah, yards, yards. There's one, you know, command center for the Mew, even though there may be, you know, there's three ships yeah. and, uh, and, and that's on the, uh, you know, the big deck, the, the ship that has all the, you know, the, uh, aviation elements and so forth. So, so um, it's the the bridge, the CIC of the uh, of the the ship that oh, the, ship. the owns the, the that the owns the track. They're talking to, 
and the ELFOC, the Landing Force Operations Center, a, a ways away if they have calm, right? It's talking, might be talking to the company commander, keeping track of items on an execution checklist, but they're right. essentially eavesdropping on this traffic because the Navy owns it. Right. Okay, talk to me about, so at some point, somebody has to make a determination on sea state, and you see that. So how is that routinely done? Is that, you know, you have a naval, naval vessel that's, that's yaw, and somebody's got to make a determination on sea state. Is that, hey, look, local sea state where I am is this, so it's got to be that where yeah. you are? That determination is made by the commanding officer of the ship that's receiving the actual amphibious vehicles. He decides whether it's safe to splash to go do the mission, and he decides whether it's safe for the AVs to splash from the shore to get back to the ship. He makes that determination. Okay, and so so does that guy have a title other than seal the ship? I mean, in this whole thing, no. so so no. it's it's uh, the commander of the the CATF, the commander of the, the Somerset, yeah. yeah, the commander of the amphibious task force, and then there's the commanding officer in this case, the Somerset. He makes an assessment on sea state, and he ultimately gives thumbs up or thumbs down to whether any, anybody right. moves, and that's the way it works. Right. Yep. Right. So there'd be a brief beforehand, and sea state would have a go, no-go criteria. Right. Three. And I think they put in here, sea state four is no-go. Three. No, but go three. ahead. Three. Sea state three is no-go. peace. And so the, the CO of the ship ultimately determines what the sea state is. And even if it's sea state two... He can still negate it mm -hmm. if for a variety of reasons. But if it's C State 4, he can't say go because that's a no. no go criteria set by headquarters higher than him. Uh, but he is ultimately responsible for everything his unit does and fails to do mm -hmm. to include safe execution of launching and recovering AAVs. So, yeah, they never take a chance. Like they rarely. never, you know, yeah, yeah. rarely. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. All right. Um, is there anything else relative to, you know, ship to shore movement, the way we train to do that, uh, that, that we need to expand on? And, uh, cause next week what we'll do, uh, is we'll talk about the events of, 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 uh, June 30th. We'll, we'll pull findings of fact out of the investigation. We'll, we'll, t we'll talk about that. Timmy. I'm curious as to why we did not have, at least from what I can tell from the investigation, a proper six-month workup. It sounds like, certainly with the tracks, I don't know about the other components of the ground combat element. Those guys were, were cast all over the goddamn place doing doing uh, exercises in Egypt or some nonsense like that when they ought to have been chopped over to the Mew. The one thing that we can't, I can't divine from this, from this uh, uh, investigation is why things didn't progress the way they did in the 80s when we first started doing these MUSOC ones. Because well, the easy, answer, yeah, the easy answer to that is uh, COVID was uh, caused all kinds of uncertainty. Okay. There was a, the, the Navy had uh, they, their own quarantine system, their own quarantine requirements. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll tell you what, it was, uh, it was daunting. It's a, it's a wonder they got any kind of training at all in regards to working with those ships. Uh, the Marine Corps did, I think they tried to do their best, you know, training around the stuff, the social distancing and the, and the uh, quarantine and stuff like that. But uh, it, was a, it was a factor. There are things, basic things. 
you couldn't talk to like uh, groups of uh, I was supposed to do something for Bronzy's command element, which before you chop, and this is before they chop, is less than sixty people, and I wasn't able to do it because of uh, because of uh, you know the social distancing stuff, and and yeah. the people were learning as it went by, like what is acceptable and what isn't. If you remember the whole time, Bronzy's starting out with this, the uh, the uh, that was when all that shit was going on with the Roosevelt or had just happened with the Roosevelt. So there was a lot of uncertainty and, uh, you know, and it, w- it was definitely a fa- it was a huge factor for everybody as far as ops went in Pendleton, but particularly for the 15th Mew. Yeah, I would say, though, uh, not being there, I don't doubt any of that. But at a certain point, there's go no criteria for everything. Yeah. And. Not properly forming units, not having sure that they had logistical readiness. It's not, not walking through basic training requirements and SOPs. Um, that's where commanders, and not necessarily tactical commanders on the ground, lieutenants, captains, lieutenant colonels. That's where two three-star generals, O6s on both Navy and Marine Corps, need to come in and say, if COVID requires this, then this deployment can't go on time because we can't meet the training requirements. And don't forget, every training rule, it's written in blood. Right. Right? I have to tell you. We didn't make that shit up. Someone died or got hurt. And that's why we put rules and regulations in place because we know better. Remember I told you about the three SC periods, you know, the – Here's what happened with uh, 15th Mew. Because of all these, you know, um, you know, contradictory rules in regards to quarantining and uh, distance of, you know, uh, you know, time and space, you had to be separated and stuff like that. Um, they put uh, 15th Mew's second and third at sea period together and then had them deploy at the end of it with no... All they did was send the evaluators to shore, and then they went overseas. It was bizarre, you know. Um, you know well, how, how, well I mean, let me just tell you, yeah. the driving force behind that, because I spent some time with those guys doing post-traumatic winning after the track incident, was that uh, the Navy's quarantine period was, yes. I want to say, 21 days. And so yeah. what they were faced with was they were going to, go at sea again, and in order to go to sea again, they had to quarantine for 21 days, send everybody home on, ter- on pre-deployment leave, bring them back, quarantine again for 21 days, and then go to sea. And they said, look, that's, what, six weeks of quarantine. Not going to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to send everybody home on leave, bring them back, shove the last, what, two at-sea periods shoved together, that's and a, then deploy. Yeah. But I'll tell you something. Like here's, where three star, yeah, here's where a three-star general needs to step up. And he needs to say, I understand that. And as a result of that, here are all the mission profiles that we are not going to be able to execute right. because of that. Here's the other mitigation that we're going to take to ensure, because we know we're skipping some of the basics. Yeah. And that's where, that's what you're supposed to do as a general, mm. is go in. If you're requiring someone to do something that you know is high risk, yeah. what are you doing to mitigate? Yeah, then and the idea of, well, we don't have enough fucking time, so we'll just do it unsafe. Yeah, there's 12 mission essential tasks that MU has to be able to do. And 
they, in my estimation, because of all the weirdness with COVID, they weren't able to adequately prepare for at least half of them probably. And so consequently, what Will said is what should have happened. But Bronzy, Colonel Bronzy, the CEO of the MU, he doesn't have the authority to say, uh, I'm just going to abrogate, you know, 70, you know, 25% of my mission essential tasks. That's got to be a general who does that. And that general works at the MEF headquarters. I, I would love to see the sorts report on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were they reporting on the day they deployed? Can, we'll explain sorts to everybody. Uh, I don't know what the acronym means, but it's basically it's readiness. <laughs> and you yeah. report it every 30 days, uh, and it's a bunch of different categories. It's all your maintenance, but it's also training. You report on your training readiness, NBC, individual skills, amphibious operations, yada, 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 and everything in between. And Dental. typically in the Marine Corps, to list yourself as not mission-capable you get a red rocket. It doesn't even get to headquarters because, you know, the MEF won't let it go out. And I'll give General Mattis a lot of credit for this. When we came back from the war, he told everyone, I don't care what the tra- tradition in short reporting is. We have to report absolutely accurately because it's the only way we're going to get healthy. Mostly logistics, but also in personnel. If this unit was reporting... And you reported battalion, squadron level on up. It'd be interesting to see what they were reporting the day they deployed, if they were fully mission capable, and training. The it's, the acronym if stand, they were the acronym stands for status of resources and training system. There you go. If they reported that they were 100% mission capable, then I would go back and ask the MEF commander. Well, if these guys can do it during COVID, skipping all this time in between, why can't everyone else do it that way? Yeah, why can't, we, sh- why, why can't we shorten the training cycle? Yeah, it's, right. a, it's the same thing. You know, when I used to hear the commandant during the war talking about, uh, well, I can't tell the difference between the reservists and the regular force. Well, fuck, if, I, if that's the case and I'm a taxpayer, then I say, why am I paying the regular force to work every day if you can do it one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer? It's complete mm-hmm. horseshit. And if these guys were able to accomplish all of their training with all of these restrictions, then why do we take six months? Well, it's because it's obviously they weren't ready. And we still sent them out. Right. And hopefully nothing happens. We'll just, you know. Well, that is the, that the is the Marine Corps tradition. When was the last time, you know, somebody somebody fucked up a McCree or, or, or did shitty on something and, and got told, okay, yeah, you need to stay on station out there. These guys aren't ready. It, it doesn't happen. Get the fuck on the plane. Get on the boat. You're going. Period. Yeah, that's a, that's, right? Marine that's a Corps. recurring theme. Yeah, and, and Mac, while it is a Marine Corps tradition, there's also a tradition of a bunch of hard-nosed bastards out there that make sure they do get it right. No, uh, I got that. And, and uh, again, unfortunately, it, it, I don't know where those guys were. Right. And, and But if you've ever worked around the meth and you see the op tempo and you see the way the Marine Corps does not like to say no to anything, right? I, I mean, you can only pull the rubber band so tight, you know, and, you know, but again, you know, you, know, you always get that. 
if we say no, I mean, the army's going to start doing our shit, right? If we yeah, say that's no, true. If, if we yeah, say no to this, some priorities. Right. Well, that, some priorities. One of them. Thirteen out of fourteen deadlined. A complete lack of cohesion in a unit. It's not clear to me that anybody gave a shit when they put this battalion, this battalion landing team together. They said, "Ah, oh, you know, the rubber band's tight. We got a lot of stuff. Oh well." And here's the here's really here's the really you know question is like, I wonder if the last battalion or the last BLT went out like that and nothing happened because nothing just happened. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you can yeah. only roll those dice so many times. All right, um, Timmy. You were gonna say something? No, nope, I didn't. I've got I've got nothing to add other than my concerns when I read this thing were obviously valid. I was hoping we were seeing an anomaly, and it seems like we're seeing a trend, and the trend is away from the 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 striving towards excellence that characterized our our company grade experience. I mean, a, a, a track a, a track platoon being cut to a BLT with thirteen deadline tracks that. that I, I can't imagine that ever happen. I, I can't imagine it. How, how, how the hell does that even happen? But, uh, I mean, circa 1987, 88, never would have happened. But and, happen and, 2003, 2004 either. Yeah, no shit. I mean, I've, I've never heard of anything like that. And I, and I thought it was an anomaly, and it evidently isn't. And we've got problems that are bigger than probably you know, wants to contemplate the cg of the two meth when i was there for most of the time was general Bidler, who was an f-18 pilot and he was um the one thing about that guy if any unit showed up with problems with their sorts reports or with uh you know vehicles there he would he didn't care what it was whether it's an airplane or an av he was hard on it and so everybody fell in line you know, and then we got General Miller after that. General Miller had been a former MU commander, and he was the same way, you know, in a, in a less, you know, unpleasant way. But he was the same thing, you know. No, you're going to do this right, you know. It was everyone, it was a high stress time, that time when those briefs were being done, you know, to the MEF staff. Because uh, if you're if that, you know, even though there's a, everyone's got a lot of balls in the air and we can't say no, that's all true. But the one thing that's like separated from that has always been the muse. All right, boys, um, let's talk about what you're reading. Um, Will, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I finished that book uh, I talked about last week, uh, The War That Killed Achilles. Uh, I recommend that to anyone who's interested in uh, ancient history at all. Uh, the author basically, it's an analysis of the Iliad, and uh, she brings in sort of Greek culture at the time, uh, mythology, uh, it, it's just really, really well done, uh, and thoughtful. And, uh, I, I, you know, made me think about, uh, what I knew previously and how she relates it to, um, you know, sort of just the whole human condition and particularly, uh, in combat. So it was really well done. Uh, and, and I just started reading the book this week. What's the title again? It's uh, the war that killed Achilles. Got it. Got it. He was not supposed to die except for because the only vulnerable he, part was his heel. But well, yeah. th and that's not part of the Iliad. You know, he was oh, fated. Yeah. Yeah. He was fated to die. Right. And and, and uh, you know, the, uh, I'll talk about it for just a second. A very interesting, you know, thing. One of the dilemmas of Achilles was, 
as that if he stayed and fought, he was going to die, but he'd have everlasting glory. Right. If he didn't stay, he could have gone home to his father, who was an elderly man, and lived a, 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 a dull, boring, long life. Yeah. He tried to fight. Yeah, he tried to get out of it in the beginning, remember? Yeah. yeah. His, woman. his fate was to die. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lesson of the Iliad that it's better to have everlasting glory or yeah. to have an unremembered life. And it just, it's, you know, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so now I'm reading a book by H.W. Brands called The Zealot and the Emancipator. And it's a parallel biography of John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. Wow. And how <laughs> they're going along and how they eventually sort of come together. And uh, this guy, Brands, I, I like his writing. Uh, this is really good. Uh, an interesting piece of it, uh, just in one of the chapters, you know, Chief Justice Taney authored the Dred Scott decision, which basically <laughs> said uh, slaves, former slaves and their ancestors can't be citizens, they're property, um, which was one of the first times, if not the first time, you know, the court really got involved politically. And I'd heard of Taney before and figured he was just some Southern segregationist put in the court. Well, he was a lawyer in Maryland uh, Southern sympathies, obviously, but at one point he had, uh, defended someone, uh, in a case having to do with, uh, former slaves and won the case, uh, that basically allowed this person to be free. And, uh, it's just sort of an interesting little piece yeah. of history. Um, yeah. that I didn't know, um, but brands is really very good tracing, you know, be a chapter on John Brown, a chapter on Abraham Lincoln and what they were doing in the 1840s and 1850s until they eventually sort of came together. Uh, a really well done book. Timmy, what do you nice. I, I, before we were done last week, had already downloaded Boons of My Grandfather, and I just wanted to mention that book as being pretty damn awesome, to tell you the truth. Talk about learning things you didn't know, but you probably think that makes sense was that, for instance, when the bones of my grandfather, uh, when Lieutenant Bonnyman, the, the individual the books evolved uh, about, one of his best friends is in the Navy and is a photographer, and the Admiral, knowing he's a good photographer, told him, go ashore and get pictures of this damn thing because he wants to defend himself against the inaccuracies or the, 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 the lack of the naval bombardment doing the job. And this guy happens to stumble into guys who are talking about this cat from Tennessee, and it was his friend Bonneman. Weird stuff like that. Yeah, I, I just love reading those kind of vignettes. But I've, I've moved on to a serious book, which I don't recommend to anybody except for Jeff Kenny, um, because it is a long, drawn-out history of our involvement in the Kunar province of Afghanistan. Oh, wow. how, the, how the hell we ended up there to begin with, how we just sort of casually sort of stayed. And I wanted to, I, I am reading this thing and I am, I'm, I am, 
I'm getting a little bit excited because it's answering questions I've always I've always had. This is the it's book that you by talked a guy about. By the name of Wes of Wesley Morgan, who was a reporter, a young reporter who showed up in the Kunar in 2010, and is fascinated by the place and has written a tour de force. And he's got Delta CIA guys, SEAL Team Six. He's got everybody on record. He talked to everybody that mattered in Kunar except for Jeff Kenny. And I'm going to write him a letter telling him he screwed that part up. But it's an uh, awesome read. Probably, I was probably had the shits then. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. It's, it's an awesome. I wouldn't be surprised if you're in the book, brother. I just haven't gotten to you yet. But it it's an awesome read, and it shows you just exactly how we sleepwalk ourselves into something as intractable as the Kunar province, a place yeah. we had no business ever being there and having the slightest information from the Soviet times would have known better because the Soviets just got waxed in Kunar. They did nothing but die in that place. And they just left it alone, which is what we should have done too. Beautiful place. A lot of good. Oh, it's beautiful. It's that oh it's gorgeous, man. You like mountains and streams and 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 raging white water, Kunar's your place. Yep. You you know, you just gotta accent it with some AK and RPG rounds coming your way. That's all. Yeah, got it. Yeah, got it. but it's an interesting. It's an interesting story about a tough people living in a beautiful place, and uh, I don't think when it's all said and done, it's going to paint our, our our efforts very favorably, despite the best intentions of every American involved, which got goes it. without saying. Got it, Jeff. Well, I'm not reading anything right now. I've been looking at the TV and following this immigration catastrophe but I, <laughs> what it, was, it made me decide to reread a book i want to put on my pit kindle by joseph wambaugh called uh, lines and shadows which was about uh, san diego police detectives in like 79 78 79 who were sent into the canyons dressed as polios i.e chickens the the slang that the coyotes have for you know the uh, the people they're bringing up from across the border and pretend to be them and and then you know basically undercover stop robberies and rapes and stuff like that and they thought you know it'd be pretty exciting but it ended up they're getting in gunfights almost every night and so they start going through you know high stress uh you know they're drinking a lot and everything it's a very good joseph wamba book lines and shadows and i'm gonna have to get it on my kindle because i have friends around here but they don't have good libraries that would have them <laughs> so I can't go over there and visit and have them subconsciously will me that you know donate this book to me, you know, you know later when I when they find I have it. So I have to actually fucking buy it, which I will. So that's what I'm doing. Wow. I had somebody send me a book and said, "Hey, Mac, I think this is a great book." Um, and so let me offer it. Um, I don't know if any of you have read it, and but uh, it's called Last Stands. Why men? Ah, I have. Why men fight against? Why men fight when all is lost? By Michael Walsh. Yeah, Will or um, uh, Tim was reading that like six months ago. Yeah, man, I I I I, uh, I reviewed that one on the show. Okay. It's a good one. All right, and so uh, he said it was great. Said it was great, and because uh, that book has like Custer, but it has like Isan Luana and, and stuff that happened in modern times. No, 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 no. Remember, we were talking about it because his father was at the Chosen. And right. I thought his father was in Fox, but he wasn't in Fox 25. He was in another. That's right. That's yeah, right. his dad was an 81 platoon commander in Chosen Reservoir. That's why that book really grasped me, because at the end, he's talking about family. 
Yeah, wow. Michael Walsh. Michael mm-hmm. Walsh. So there you go. All right. Um, so just so everybody knows, uh, next week uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, relative to the 15th Mu investigations. We'll talk about operations. Um, you know, going through what we set up in terms of all the different component parts um, that should have that that should have been in place. What happens on uh, on the on July 30th, and uh, and then ultimately. Um, hey, can I say one thing, Mac? I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Finish what you're saying, but we're doing next week, and I just want to make sure I don't forget this. No, I I, I just want everybody to know that that uh, you know, I mean, we've all lived through investigations, right? And uh, and one of the things I, I I've tried to do with the show over the years, and I don't care if it's the F-18 KC-130 uh, accident uh, over Okinawa or the or the KC-130, um, you know, uh, mid-air event over Mississippi. Um, you know, I, 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 I try to bring smart people on to explain what happened. And so and so we'll continue that. I thought it's important to with these guys this week to go ahead and, and, and put in place, you know, how this stuff you know, works, how the mu is formed, how it's, how it, how, you know, where the equipment comes from. And then also, you know, the, the, the training component in all of this. And then also, you know, the, uh, towards the end of, of what we talked about today, which is a little bit of the command and control and, and, and who's responsible for what and how that stuff works. So, so next week, what we'll talk about are, are, are the significant pieces of the investigation. And, uh, and we'll talk about that. So with that said, Jeff. Yeah. Um, I guess last couple of days in Brazil, the the chief of the Air Force, the chief of the Army, and the chief of the Navy all resigned at once because of uh, the way the president treated uh, like their equivalent of the Secretary of Defense and uh, and some other things. But it's, you know, there's probably a lot more to it. And it's Bolsonaro. Who can you imagine if our guy our guys would ever resign over uh, you know an issue like that? I don't. Th- I don't think our guys are. Basically, what these guys did is resign on a point of principle, because they're they're unlike most countries in South America. I guess Brazil, for since 1985, has been known for having a non-political military. So how about that? Yeah. How about yeah. that? Um, and, and let me just put a little plug in. Um, in light of that, um, the, the in the last week, I've seen a couple articles. Christovuchis. Uh, who's the uh, former commanding officer of 11th Marine Regiment, uh, one of the artillery regiments in the Marine Corps, now is director of the artillery school, Marine Corps' artillery school at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. He wrote a, he wrote a paper uh, saying that, you know, composite, you know, uh, missile uh, groups, battalions won't work and offers his solution to how it will. And, and, and you know, yesterday... Um, Jeff and I talked about an article that Dale Alford's written, and uh, and and Dale is uh, is is one of the great anomalies of the Marine Corps guys who's fought for this country at every rank he's ever held, and I don't know anybody else like him. But he's uh, he he's written a piece called the Fl- the four block littoral force, the infantry's attack towards force design 2030, and it's going to appear in the Gazette. In June, so I'm not at liberty to to circulate it. Uh, Jeff and I though did talk about it yesterday, and I would encourage everybody to, to listen to it. And, and the reason I bring those up in light of what Jeff just said is, 
you know, I, you know the. I don't know that there's been enough open discussion relative to the Commandant's Force Design 2030 plan, um, and and I think Jeff and I both found uh, uh, General Alfred's piece, uh, you know. I think reassuring in terms of well, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's beat this up, you know, and this, you know, and and where does this go, and how does it work, and and whatnot, and and when you. I guess I'm heartened by starting to see people that are beginning to dissent and offer what they believe to be better courses of action, which I believe is, is your moral obligation as somebody who serves the nation. And so I want to applaud both those guys for doing it. I hope we see more of it. I hope more of it's encouraged. And, uh, and uh, no, Jeff's, uh, Jeff's point about the Brazilian military is, uh, I think, is absolutely critical. And... Uh, and that you're going to stand up for what's right, no matter what. And we, and we've talked about this, that so we don't have enough of it in this country. So, so anyway, um, thank you very much. And uh, uh, so, uh, very sober stuff. So, uh, so uh, we will uh, we will see you next week. So, Will, Tim, Jeff, thank you very much. Thank All you, right, brother. Have a good day. All right. I'll, more of All Marine Radio coming up next, right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network.